What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Damp Valley coming at you with yet another mailbag as I finish up day four without caffeine. The energy I have right now might be artificial or maybe just delirious, incoherent. We're about to find out. Had so many great questions. There's a chance I might need to split this into a third part, uh, which is fine because I already announced there will not be a mailbag next week as we get into off-season grades. I'm going to try and get through as many as possible, but never to keep the off-season episodes more manageable length where they're not like 80 hours each. Um, I might need to split this into a, a weekend mailbag episode. So thank you all for your questions. It was fantastic. If this is your first time checking us out, you've stumbled upon us for some reason. Hit that subscribe button on YouTube right now. It means the world to me. If you are listening to us for your podcast player, throw us the permanent subscription. Help us download, uh, or excuse me, please download every episode. Uh, tell your friends, family members, acquaintances, coworkers about us, people on the internet who you know like hoops. You can also retweet our promos on Twitter, of course. That helps out a bunch. Or if you know people who consume a lot of YouTube videos for basketball, tell them to check us out, me out, as, we, as I try to do a very thorough, unserious, though, job of covering the entire NBA at large. Join our Discord. It's a lot of fun in there. This is a Discord-dominant mailbag. Those are the questions I'm going to get to first. So you will get priority or at least ensure that there's one mailbag per week with your question by being in Discord uh, in ways that you cannot ensure that on Twitter via email, as I've gotten some via direct message or via YouTube, even though I put out solicitations on uh, on YouTube, though. So Join our Discord. The link to that is in the YouTube description and the podcast description. Our socials are either on your screen or in the podcast slash YouTube description. Whew. Uh, that was a longer intro than I wanted, but let's dive right into this mailbag. There was a shit ton of really good questions. They're all really good questions, but this one was especially um, chock full of them and included a lot of, of thinkers. So HP Burgi Discord again asks, I've been wondering about something for the next mailbag. How many teams are one player leap away from being legitimate real contenders? For example, Ja made an unexpected MVP level leap last year, and the Grizzlies have the second best record in the league. That is still fucking wild. That it wasn't just the second best record in the West. It was the second best record in the league. Some teams I thought about uh, for this were the Timberwolves and the Pelicans of Ant and Zion make Ja level leaps, but are there others? The Cavs with Mobley, the Raptors with Barnes. What teams have enough talent that if one guy developed enough, it could take them into the upper echelon of contenders? That's a fantastic question. And I like framing it this way rather than what team is one player away? Because really every team could technically be one trade away if someone like Kevin Durant is floating around out there. But this is a, a more interesting exercise because it's more attainable if you have someone on your team who you think can develop into something or make um, a, a bigger leap to where this core that you have as currently constructed could be a contender and so look uh hp energy uh excuse me hp burgey you already like listed most of the main ones i'll push back so let's go through them here i don't think the Cavs with mobley just yet there needs to be another offensive dynamic to them on the perimeter that even if you run more stuff through mobley i don't think that you get there they could come pretty close though but that i think you need a combination of oh mobley makes a leap plus you acquire someone who's not already on the roster. And that includes if they resign Sexton, extend Levert, whatever uh, I'm with you on the Timberwolves. They are just, I, I have a, there's another question that I think is going to directly follow this one that they're going to relate to people are either, there are some people that might be too high on the Timberwolves. I think generally nationally we're too low 
of the Timberwolves, especially when you're looking at the regular season. Um, but if you get the leap from Anthony Edwards and you don't really have to concern yourself with, well, who's going to be the engine of our offense? And do we have someone who can hit um, off the dribble triples, score from the mid range with his floater, which we know that he's been working on in the offseason, finish tough at the rim, get to the line, who is just that threat at every level. And then is also a playmaker. D'Lo was pretty good last year. Uh, he's probably a little bit more of an efficient offensive player than people credit him for. He's not in every level score like that. And then plus just Anthony Edwards, his defensive disruption, or if you want to call him a defensive playmaker as well, that goes a long way. And you're almost guaranteed to have an elite defense this year if Gobert is going to remain healthy. So if you get that third superstar, like that player who is just recognized, where I think you call, even if you people don't like Gobert in the playoffs, even if people have problems with Carl Anthony Towns' defense, uh, those are like two legitimate, unquestionable, I would say, top 20 guys. Certainly top 25. I would throw Anthony Edwards in that conversation. I haven't gone through since I don't do. I used to rank the top 100 players for Bleacher Report. Uh, I do not do that anymore. Uh, kind of, I kind of miss it, and I also kind of don't miss it at the same time. I digress there. Though, so, that being said, like if Anthony Edwards gets to that consensus top 15 player to where right now I don't know if the Wolves have a consensus top 15 player they might actually have two but there are going to be debates as to where um Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert belong they're both like in the all-NBA discussion for their respective positions or position they should play the same one it's like yeah they're, they're close to that but does Ant Edwards become like he's their best shot at getting that top 10 guy um where John Morant might have been fringed that this year so if, if Ant makes um, that consensus top 15 player leap I would absolutely throw the Timberwolves in there. The the Pelicans, for sure. If you told me that Zion plays, because we kind of have a better idea of what Zion is at his peak, thanks to 20, 2021. If you told me Zion played in like 67 games at that level last year, I don't even know if it's a matter of him making a leap. He doesn't like, okay, maybe he hits some more standstill threes, or maybe he's just playing better defense, not leaving, um, you know, not as inattentive or ball watchy when he's away from the ball itself. So, but if you told me he played in 67 games, Looking at the context of that roster, having Brandon Ingram, having CJ McCollum now, uh, Larry Nance Jr., seeing what you got from Herb Jones and Trey Murphy last year um, on top of Jose Alvarado, they could absolutely make that jump. I feel like it's a little bit harder for them just because the Pelicans are going to be reliant on more inexperience closer to the top of their roster where it's where it's like, okay, there are three sophomores in Alvarado, Trey Murphy, and Herb Jones who are super important. What kind of follow-up campaign campaigns do they have and then how does Dyson Daniels sort of look how much do they depend on him and so that I think I'd probably put the Timberwolves just above them when we're looking at actual peaks if you told me that the Pelicans are gonna be better than the Timberwolves next year and that's more likely to you fine but I think if we did the 99th percentile outcome for the Timberwolves it's probably slightly better than that of the Pelicans and maybe like even the 50th percentile outcome like it just there's I don't know how to describe it, but the Pelicans feel just a little bit less immediate than peak Timberwolves, if that makes any sense for anyone. Uh, so some other teams that I had, and uh, you also mentioned the Raptors. They're right there. Uh, they're like a team that I feel like they have a very high floor and their ceiling might be a little bit lower if Scotty Barnes is kind of just like another regular player, only Im improves incrementally compared to his rookie season. But if he makes like the jump, and you're running more stuff through him on offense. And the jumper, the set jumper, he's not hitting off the dribble jumpers, but he has like some moves when he's in the, the poster from the mid-range. Uh, if he's making that, like any sort of leap there, to even like not even a primary playmaker, but 
more of a secondary playmaker, not just someone who you're using as like the third ball handler, but maybe your second ball handler, you absolutely throw the Raptors into there. I still might, if we're looking at the highest end outcomes of this season, I think it would go Timberwolves, Pelicans, Raptors for me. They're all really close. I thought about Pelicans, Timberwolves, right? But yeah, if assuming no changes to the roster, of course, and there might be a big one in Toronto since they remain heavily linked to, to Kevin Durant. Uh, I also think, uh, so some teams I try to come up with that were not on this list. If you already feel like Philly is grandfathered into this, that fine, that's fine. But if Tyrese Maxey takes another step forward, given how good he already was, we're one, maybe talking about him as a potential all-star candidate. And then two, like you're a little bit less worried about the Sixers uh, and how dependent they are on James Harden and uh, James Harden being James Harden and then Joel Embiid remaining healthy. So I think you could throw them in there. Phoenix, uh, if if Mikael Bridges or Cam Johnson kind of makes like a, a really big offensive leap this year to where they have another consistent off the dribble creator from the outside in, uh, I know DeAndre Ayton's always go, well, not always, but is their third best player. They need that. I would call it a guard, but they really just need more outside in creation. Uh, hopefully that makes sense to people. So if you wanted to throw them in there, I think they're still already in the contenders click, but Philly Phoenix were a team to mention. And then the other one I have, Denver. If you get like the leap from Michael Porter Jr. this year and he stays healthy, you're not just like a new contender. You're one of the title favorites. I've said on this podcast that I'm, when I go through this before the season, I don't know who's going to be my title pick, but I kind of have it pinned down to like the five teams and the Nuggets are very off. They're like my number one, right? As of right now, if I had to pick right this moment, I would pick them to win the title. Still questions about their bench. I went on DNVR and talked with Brennan Voigt and uh, Adam Ades. Uh, the other day. So you could go check that out about why I'm so high on Denver. And maybe they don't belong in this discussion because you could make the argument, do they really need Michael Porter Jr. to be a contender? But if Michael Porter Jr. makes the leap that it looked like he was headed towards or already kind of making in 2020-2021, and you scale that to the entirety of this season, we're talking about a title favorite here. And so those are the other teams I mentioned. That was a that was a really great question. I don't think anyone else springs to mind. If you could go with Atlanta and you think that DeAndre Hunter finally makes the leap and he's more consistent on offense, uh, in addition to even improving a little bit on defense and just improving his availability overall, I think I would listen to that. I think some people might argue, well, what if Patrick Williams makes the jump for Chicago? That could be another candidate. I kind of run out of options after that. Uh, depending on how you feel about Memphis, do you think that they're a contender? Do they need sort of another leap from a Desmond Bain or a Zaire Williams? That would be another team to mention here. I'm not necessarily sold on them uh, as that bona fide contender right now, which I recognize is such a stupid ass thing to say about a team that just had the second best record in the league. That was a great question though. Uh, Gabriel 200, uh, 1200 asks, which five teams have the widest error bands for you going into next season? And which five have the smallest by error bands? I just mean range of outcomes slash win records and potential slash potential goodness. Uh, this was another fun question that I put a lot of thought into. Um, so we'll frame it like this. I'm going to look at the widest range of outcomes. So like low to high to where they could suck. I'm, I'm using extremes here to be like the best thing um, that we've ever seen on a basketball court. And then we'll do like the narrowest range of outcomes to where uh, I'm not going to focus so much on teams that we know are going to be bad, but teams that are good and maybe they have really high floors, but um, what does that say about their ceilings? Do they have the the highest ceiling? Or maybe they're just their floor is so high that it's it's just close to their ceiling. 
this one's, I feel like, less fun. Let's start with the narrowest range of outcomes. So we'll start here. This is the whole exercise is fun, but the widest range of outcomes I enjoy a little bit more. So I have the Clippers here. They feel like they have a, an absurdly high floor, uh, even if they're going to have to deal with more injuries again, and that their floor is still title contender and their ceiling is title favorite. Uh, I thought about the Phoenix Suns here as well, too. Um, just because I think they still have a very high regular season floor. If you're worried about Chris Paul kind of have, and that's look when I'm framing it this way, if you have a very high floor um, that narrows your range of outcomes to me, because you you would be closer in theory to your, your, your best case outcome. So I have the Clippers. I have the Suns there just because I feel like we've soured on them collectively too much since that game seven debacle versus Dallas. They deserve to be crucified for it. I don't necessarily endorse them running it back in full but if they don't get kevin durant and there's not another trade out there for them to make an addition this is still going to be a damn good slash great basketball team that is going to be mentioned for me at least still among the top five contenders in the league the bucks belong here too uh if you have Giannis, like your floor is just contender in the east uh i think and so these two, it's funny that they show up here because we were just talking about how they might be one player away, one player leap away. I think the Nuggets, like we kind of just saw their saw their floor, and it was five six in the West, but their ceiling is still like one two in the West as well. And so they don't need pristine health or availability for Murray or Michael Porter Jr. to be really good. Uh, I think you could argue that maybe they're not a good pick, just if as I mentioned, if you get a leap and good health from Michael Porter Jr., not to mention good health from Jamal Murray, uh, you're probably looking at becoming a title favorite. So I, I could understand if you don't think they're valid. And then I also have Toronto here in large part because I just feel like they're going to be really good. And you could, I also would argue that they might be the truest example of this narrow range of outcomes because as high as I am on Toronto, and I will talk myself into them beating anyone over the course of a seven-game series, as currently constructed, like do you really see a pathway for them to being one of the five best teams in basketball. Like you can see the vision with the nuggets there. And we know the blueprint in Milwaukee, Phoenix and the Clippers But with Toronto. It's like, okay, I don't think they're going to fall further than fifth in the East, but what's their path to becoming two in the East. And so it feels like they have the finite range of outcome unless they make a move. And I would argue it's for, it would need to be for another just creator type. That person who works from the outside in and is preferably like not super small, even though I like the idea of Donovan Mitchell in Toronto. If it's if it's Kevin Durant, there you go. Uh, so those are my narrowest range of outcomes. I didn't really know who else to consider here. I think there are a lot of people that would probably go with Memphis in this, but those are those are my five teams that I hashed out there. Some people might even go with Miami or Boston. I think there's some combustibility uh, in a bad way for for both teams there. And I also just like maybe Miami kind of belongs there because I'm starting to question whether they're going to be like these true blue contenders. I really would like to see them solve like the four spot next to PJ Tucker, my widest range of outcomes. This was way more fun. I actually have seven teams jotted down. So let me, let me get through my honorable mentions here. Uh, I have the Sacramento Kings and the Dallas Mavericks, the Mavericks. I almost considered for both narrowest and widest range of outcomes. They have Luca. And so I'm like, they have to be good but they just lost their second best player. They're planning on playing JaVale McGee and Christian Wood at the same time. Um, they still lack tertiary shot creation. It's Spencer Dinwiddie, Luca, and then that's fucking it. Like if you're going to trust Tim Hardaway Jr. to be that person for you or Jaden Hardy uh, in year one, you're going to run into some issues. So I could see a pathway to them being bad 
like pretty bad talking about falling out of the, the play in territory, but I think it's, you have Luca. And so that props up your floor a little bit. I just don't think they, um, I would call it a narrow range of outcomes for them because I do think there's that combustibility, uh, but they ended up being an honorable mention here. And also I would slot them into one of the teams is very contingent upon the personnel, which is probably going to change. So they would be like my first runner up. And then there's the Kings. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I trust their depth overall, and I definitely am not going to trust their defense. But if you get to a point where you're just winning games 120 to something or 130 to something, I could see a pathway to them being really good, not just playing good, but are they one of the top six teams? I would say that their ceiling might be six in the in the Western Conference, but I think that their floor is also much lower than that. Still, you look at them on paper, and with Keegan Murray, De'Aaron Fox, Domas Sabonis, Harrison Barnes, um, Davion Mitchell, Malik Monk being there, uh, having Rashawn Holmes as a backup big right now. There, there is talent and like looking at, and they're also look, Mike Brown uh, received a lot of credit for some of the work he did defensively with golden state that might just help them systematically in Sacramento. So I'm not ruling it out. Uh, I just don't know if they have the ceiling to where I'd want to put them in the widest range of outcomes. So the team Let's get to my actual list. I have the Nets on here, and they could be like easily bounced. I'm not even just basing this off of, oh, they could have Kevin Durant or not have Kevin Durant. It's just like, think about a Kevin Durant trade. What are they getting back? Are they getting back Jalen Brown? All of a sudden, you have like this non-all-NBA star on your roster, and what does Ben Simmons look like? Have you traded Kyrie Irving at that point? And it was it for... Russell Westbrook to where, you know, he's not even going to play in Brooklyn or does he play in Brooklyn at that point? Um, so there are just so many different outcomes. And this is all to say, if the Nets stay the same, you have to deal with the health issues of Kevin Durant that we've seen the past three years. Uh, there's always stuff going on with Kyrie Irving, whether it's, uh, you know, him just going MIA uh, or refusing to get the COVID-19 vaccine. That won't be as big of an issue unless they're playing in Toronto this year, uh, or he's just had some weird injury quirks throughout his career so the nets could be all over the place for me uh, i think the rest of these were easy we already talked about three of these teams i think the Cavs are there uh, they were darlings for most of last year injuries really hit them are they that team that's like third fourth best in the east but they also kind of have this floor of well their offense they haven't done anything to uh, materially improve it this summer and they haven't even officially resigned Colin Sexton yet. And so like, you're sort of running it back and there actually could be a deficit in offensive talent, depending on what happens with Colin Sexton at this point. So uh, that would be a team to monitor. And we're looking at, look, Jared Allen, Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, they can all get better. How do you work Akbaji into this? Does Isaac Okoro get any better? Heck does Colin Sexton get better if he's coming back? So I could see them being really good or like, this is a team that's like firmly in the lottery uh, ditto for the Pelicans. There's the Zion health factor is big. And then you still look at this roster. They improved a lot defensively, especially in transition under Willie green as the season went on. And just like I have that, the way that they pushed the Suns in the first round of the playoffs that is tattooed to my memory right now. Uh, but like, are they, are we rushing to coronate them as this team? That's the one player leap away, uh, given the extent to which they will be relying on some youngsters again, three sophomores and Trey Murphy, Jose Alvarado and Herb Jones. Plus they're probably going to want to develop Dyson Daniels. Are they going to try and shoehorn some Kyra Lewis minutes into here? What if Devontae Graham doesn't play well? How many games does Zion play in? How does he fit next to Jonas Valanciunas? Um, what are you doing up front 
uh, if he doesn't fit well with that? Is Jackson Hayes, are you going to try and make that fit happen? There are just a lot of questions here to where I could envision things going sideways for New Orleans, but I also think that like their best-case outcome is, oh, they're fourth or something wild in the West. Um, the Minnesota Timberwolves are on here as well. I think this one's pretty straightforward. I could see them absolutely finishing with the best record in the Western Conference. I could also see this dual big situation go belly up. I don't think it will, but it is something drastically different, even though Jared Vanderbilt and Carl Anthony Towns played together a bunch last season. This is drastically different from what they were doing. And so are they a team that um, if this pairing doesn't work out or if this setup doesn't work out, they're pretty top-heavy right now too at the moment maybe the bench isn't shallow enough do they have enough secondary creation um after D'Lo and anthony edwards how much are you going to rely on uh jordan mclaughlin and jalen noel are they going to give you enough of that that element so i could see the wolves being the best team in the western conference for the regular season i'm not even kidding i could also see them being like i don't think their their floor is probably in the play-in but there aren't many teams that ugh, I don't know. Like there aren't many teams where it's like 10th to first, like that's a really wide range of outcomes. And maybe there's a scenario where this whole dual big setup just really doesn't work out for them. Um, so then you would fall out of the plan because that's so central to how you're directing your, your roster moving forward. I wouldn't predict that. I think they will be closer to their best case outcome than not. Uh, but that's still, there is that combustibility would be the word to define this. And then finally I have the Portland trailblazers. I mentioned them on this last pod. I think their ceiling is like fifth in the West, but they're not especially deep, especially when you're looking at the front court. And if you don't, if Anthony Simons takes a step back, let alone doesn't improve um, given all he did last season, or if you just, it all of a sudden feels like you're too small or is there a Nurkic injury um, or you're just wanting for depth. Like maybe Shane Sharp is uh, if he's healthy, is he even playing right away? Is it, is there a developmental curve that's not helping you? What are you doing with the backup center spot? How reliant are you on uh, either going small where Jeremy Grant soaking up a lot, soaking up a lot of the backup five minutes, or are you just married to, let's say Drew Eubanks at this point? Um, there are a lot of questions there. Are you good defensively, even though you have this talent like Josh Hart, GP two, uh, Jeremy Grant, um, Justice Winslow, even how much is he playing? Are you getting any improvement from, from Keon Johnson? Um, given you're also reliant on youth to an extent, like, yeah, Anthony Simons is young, but he's experienced. There's also just young inexperienced guys here. Nas little has just not been healthy throughout his career. Keon Johnson mentioning there, Shaden Sharp, of course. Um, so are your best lineups? Like how, what are you conceding on that? Is it size? Can you be small? If you want to play Josh Hart, and GP2 at the same time while having Damian Lillard and Anthony Simons on the court? Um, is Jeremy Grant your five in that situation? Is it Nurkic? How does he hold up defensively this year if Portland wants to be even a little bit more aggressive on that end? So they could be pretty bad, even if they're healthy. They could also be really, really good. And so that's why they were an easy inclusion on this list for me. Another great question. Thank you, uh, Gabriel, for that one. The Bronx is hallowed ground has an interesting one. I was listening to a pod recently where the host, who is a player trainer, was critical of players competing in open runs, uh, parentheticals, pro-am games. The host point was that the competition is weak, so it's not a real workout. Specifically, he was critical of the defense. He didn't feel players got better going against lower competition. My thoughts are that these games give players a chance to put to use the new skills that they are trying to develop. Where does your opinion fall on these types of games? Do you feel they are useful, or is it just players showing off? Uh, I probably skew somewhere in the middle. I want to know what this player trainer thinks is happening in like practices uh, during the season. 
yeah, there might be some guys that are going to put up more of a fight because they're fighting for a roster spot or this is the only playing time they're getting is in scrimmages in practice. But like practice is not an adequate simulation for what's happening in an NBA game. And I think you could really just shit all over any sort of pickup basketball or non-actual NBA game if we're going to get into that. Uh, does it matter if you're just you know in a gym hitting all these open three-pointers or hitting shots that you wouldn't normally take in a game? I appreciate any game simulation more than I would something like that. Um, I do think it's interesting uh, that you believe the Bronx is hallowed ground. Uh, I feel weird calling you by that, but that is your Discord name. I, I, I never really thought that element, oh, that it gives players a chance to try out like new skills. Um, if we're talking specifically probably about ball handling or self-created shot making, I'd probably agree with you there. I wonder how much forethought goes into that. One thing to kind of think about, though, is does it matter a little bit that DeJounte Murray, John Collins, and Trey Young have already gotten reps together on the court? Like, we think, okay, that can't matter that much, but it's they're getting a little bit familiar with one another, and if nothing else, they're getting to know one another, specifically with DeJounte Murray and Trey Young and Collins have been on the same team before. Also, them playing together when there's all the rumblings that, oh, is John Collins unhappy with Trey Young? They're just kind of hysterical. Um, we do know John Collins wants a bigger role. That's a fact. So I don't have an issue with these games. Do I think that they're like super helpful to player development or player improvement? I'd probably argue no, but I don't know why you wouldn't want players in these games. And do you want them going full? So would it be better if they were going full bore and risking injury? No, like I still have that. I was watching, I think I was actually at a bar or a club when it was happening um, in my youth when Paul George was injured at the Olympics. And I remember watching that, which is like, it was gruesome. I felt terrible for him. And I understand that the stakes were higher there. It was with Team USA, but it was also like, you know, the stakes for that game was a Team USA scrimmage, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so do you want them to injure themselves? No. So why should they be going at full tilt in these games when you're looking at, oh, playing defense? If you really want to see them go up against guys who are going to try and play scrappy defense, you could find those guys in pro and games like to. Uh, on the other team so i don't know that's interesting that anyone would be critical of them i definitely don't think even if i don't think they're incredibly helpful they're they're not harmful like they're not players aren't regressing because they're playing in pro-am games uh so that that's a fascinating take that said player trainer had on a pod uh hp burgey had another question here's one i've been thinking about who's the worst player in the league that could be the best player on a championship team I was thinking maybe Tatum, Jimmy, or Paul George. Uh, and this is a twofold question, so let's start there. Um, so, yeah, you, you name all the good ones. I think Tatum is too high-end for that. Paul George feels like the the answer here. Look, Jimmy Butler and Tatum are still like, they were in the top 10 player conversation last year. And if you can't win a title with one of the 10 to 15 best players in the league as your best player, what, what are we even doing here? Uh, yes, there's star loading or just building a better supporter cast supporting cast i'm i'm curious if like I, I think paul george feels like the answer i still think is it someone like um excuse me is it someone like carl anthony towns and i don't know if that's me being too low on carl anthony towns or is it too high on carl anthony towns i mean it's more of a compliment to him but like he's someone if if he's my best player i actually feel comfortable with what the product could be you definitely have to build your supporting cast around him pretty um like uh, specifically, so maybe that isn't the best example. Paul George is is just a fantastic answer. I think Tatum's probably twyan for that. I don't think Jalen Brown is like you can't really put him in in that discussion. Uh, Trey Young probably too high end there as well. 
So I, I, I do. I think Paul George is the answer here. I think, I think uh, my answer to this next question might rankle some people, but uh, Bam Adebayo should probably be in this discussion, and he's not. Um, I, I still need to see like more from him offensively. The versatility is there, and I'm not telling him to start chucking threes, but there feels like there's a toggle on-off switch with his offensive aggression. But yeah, I think Paul George is just, that's someone who's very easy to build around and very, very easy to plug and play alongside other stars. Uh, I will die that the answer is actually Frank Nielakina, but in actuality, like if I, like I kind of want to say Shea Gilgis Alexander, it's just the talent isn't around him right now in OKC. Uh, but that might be someone I, I would consider as well. Uh, this one's probably more just apropos. If you've done that one before, who are the best worst players in the league? That could be the second best player on our championship team for the best. I was thinking Harden, Kyrie or Booker Booker for the worst. I was thinking Levine Middleton or Jamal Murray. I hate that you took all the good ones. When I was reading through this and prepping for this podcast, uh, I was like, uh, fucking Paul George is on here. And Middleton would be my answers. Like I think Middleton is the floor on what you'd want as your second best player. Um, I don't necessarily understand who can be the best second best player on a team is, is the implication that, uh, they're so that players are so good sometimes that they're be harder to fit alongside equals or, or who would be their superiors um, to which I, I could dig that. But I would say right now, like the second best um, number, the best number two in the league or the best, the best second best player in the league, I think is Harden in Philly. If we're assuming Embiid is the, the best player and, that's still general. If it's not hard, I would probably say it is Devin Booker. Would I have him in front of Paul George at this point? Yeah, I would. Um, but Harden, I still give him the benefit of the doubt. I think this is going to be a monster year for him, quite frankly. So um, if that's the question, who's the best second best player in the league? It's, it's Harden or Booker for me. And I'm look, I can't even put Booker there because I think Booker's the best player on the Suns. And so the answer for me is James Harden. Um, I would be curious, like, is Devin Booker the answer to the first question? Can he be the best player you win a championship? I actually believe the answer is yes, but am I selling too low on Devin Booker by putting him in there, which is why I didn't put him in, the, in there. I think Paul George is a uh, a great proc proxy for that. I'm just curious as to, like, where Bam Adebayo fits in this discussion. Can you win a title? Is he, like, too high-end as the second-best player? Yeah, I like, he's in that like kind of Levine or Jamal Murray territory for me. And so I think the better question would be, can you win a title with Bam as your best player? Uh, and I think Miami, like their best path to a title is probably the answer to that question being yes. Um, so he probably belongs in that first discussion. And could he be the answer then? I'm just not sure if you could win a title with him as the uh, your best player. So yeah, I think I would go with Middleton as the worst number two. And then Paul George is the worst number one. Uh, and anyone who thinks that it's not Paul George, one, what is your actual pick? And two, could we at least like we need pour one out for for Paul George here? Uh, because he he was fantastic last season when when he was healthy, and the whole pandemic P thing took on a life of its own. And I think we veer too far from reality with him. Uh, Anthony Davis could probably earn the honor of the second best second best player in the league. I actually. I like don't want to say this, but I'm not sure if you can win a title with him as the best player on your team. Was he better than LeBron uh, in the 2020 like playoff run? No, overall. So that's would be a more fascinating question. Does he belong? Like, can you win 
a title with Anthony Davis as your best player, night in, night out, best player? I think the answer is no. I'd be more inclined to think that it's Paul George than it is Anthony Davis. Is that is that wild? Like, am I am I a fucking idiot? I just, I think I just value consistent, um, every level shot creation a bit more. And if even if you're running the offense through Anthony Davis, a lot of it needs to be done through someone setting the table for him, like a LeBron. And yeah, he had that bubble run and he's had moments where just like his jumper is falling and he can really create for himself, but it never just feels consistently enough or at a, at a high enough clip for it to be in that discussion. And so is he like the best player you can't win a title with as your number one option? Like that's like, let's just totally flip the tables on this. Who would be the answer to that question? If anyone's listening to this in discord on Twitter, let me know who is the best player that you can't win a title with as your number one option. I think it's probably like Andy Davis might be the answer there. Uh, I hope at least I'm, I'm using myself with um, framing it that way. Christopher as with teams having some difficulty moving a player with four years left on their contract, do you foresee an eventual move to making long-term contracts three years? Uh, I would consider three years a long-term contract right now, just the way that extensions have worked predominantly and guys wanting to hit free agency, uh, sooner or again we've seen a lot of like two-year extensions or even like the three-year specials um and i don't think that it's hard to move people with four years left in their contract it's just kevin durant is in his 30s like mid-30s at this point uh and is one of the five seven best players in basketball so uh he's going to have a say where he goes no matter what even if he definitely doesn't have the leverage and so i actually don't think it's the contract length so much as player specific here. Uh, if this was like, I'm trying to think of an example of a player that maybe doesn't have the cachet to force a trade in the first place. Like, you know, if it was like, Jan let's use Jalen Brunson as an example. Let's say the Knicks wanted to trade him in the middle of the year. Once he's trade eligible, that's a contract that you could move. That's the four one Oh four is not. And it's, and it's declining. Uh, maybe some teams won't appreciate that, but the declining scale, I think, helps a lot of teams plan for the future. So I don't think it's the contract length so much as the player. Uh, if Shea Gillish Alexander went on the market tomorrow, uh, do, is, is he like too good? Does he have the cachet to request a trade and limit his options? I'd argue no. He's just so young. Uh, and OKC also, unlike Brooklyn, probably doesn't give a fuck. Uh, but knowing how Sam Presti operates, I'm not saying Shea is going to request a trade. I'm on record as saying the Thunder should keep him. So if there are any OKC fans listening to this, let's just clarify that. I think the bigger issue uh, here, uh, or it's not the issue, but what I think Christopher kind of alludes to that's going to be interesting, are we just going to see more shorter-term deals uh, before that we get that cap spike, whether it's in 25, 26, whatever it's supposed to be at this point? Uh, are players going to prep to want to hit free agency that first summer, let's say 2026, or do they want to kind of be in 2027 since there's cap smoothing? So you want to get two medium jumps in there. That's something I absolutely think that we could see uh, when we're looking at extensions that are going to be signed or just players like stars who are in their prime and who are still be in their prime in their prime in 26, 27. Uh, that might be how they approach deals. And even just some of the more mid end talent, like if it's just you're younger, or you're still going to be in your prime and, um, in the summer of 26 or, or 27, I, I could see you uh, signing a shorter term deal. What's interesting is that Zach Levine did not do that. And I thought he was the perfect case study this year. He signed the full five-year bolt with Chicago. He has injury concerns in his rear view, including to end the season with maybe that factored into it a little bit. 
but I do think that we'll see shorter contracts over the next summer or two become a little bit more common as players try to position themselves to capitalize um, as much as possible off what's going to be um, an impending and probably multi-year cap spike when we all assume that smoothing is going to happen. Uh, the big fella, as Bam Adebayo is looking to have his fourth different starting power forward next to him, seems to be a struggle to find the perfect fit. Who do you view as the best potential fit next to him right now and then long-term? Uh, I will say I don't think that player is on the Heat roster. I think they found some really good fits with Jay Crowder only to let him leave. And then PJ Tucker, who it seems like he wanted to leave Miami could have offered him the same contract Philly did. I don't know if they would have wanted to uh, have hard capped themselves for PJ Tucker at that point. So they found the fit. I, I was looking, I scoured rosters and I came up with some names. I wanted to think like higher end trade targets or at least semi-aggressive trade targets um, that they could go after and I think these total line of immediate fit and long-term fit, I have Jay Crowder on this list. Uh, John Collins would be fun. Maxi Klebo would be an understated example. Kelly Oubre Jr. is in the final year of his deal. I guess from a spacing perspective, I don't necessarily love it, but Kelly Oubre Jr. shot the three ball well enough for that to work. Here's a name. And I know he's been, uh, or maybe he hasn't been. I feel like I read somewhere he was linked to the, but like Miles Turner, where it's Bam and my, I don't know who, you consider the four in that scenario, but that would be a front court setup. I would like to see Marcus Moore senior, of course would work. Uh, Harrison Barnes. If things go off the rails in Sacramento, boy, by Donovich right now uh, in Utah, like, is there a way, like, what do you need to give up? If it's a Duncan Robinson for Boyan by Donovich swap, like how, how many sweeteners do you need to include Kyle Kuzma could be really interesting here. And then this is, I don't know if it's my favorite, but if things go off the rails in Portland, Jeremy Grant, they didn't give up a ton to get him. And so, it was just, they used that, um, they took him into a trade exception and gave up like the meat and potatoes of that deal was that Milwaukee pick in 2025. And so if you can get another first round pick for him from a team that won't have cap space and wants to re-sign him, if you want to move him, um, that's another name that sprang to mind. I tried to think of like really younger types that, oh, could they be available and you could try to go after them? And I just don't know that that player like would actually be gettable. Uh, would Charlotte be willing to move on from PJ Washington? I think he's probably good enough defensively in addition to stretching the floor where that could potentially work. Grant Williams in Boston. I don't know why Boston would send Grant Williams to Grant Williams is such a direct rival, um, but that could be a pairing that works out. Um, but those were like the trying to think of younger type names or if you were going to take a flyer on them, that's the route you could go. And I don't think there was nobody else that specifically like skewing younger that sprang to mind for me here. Uh, Jolt the goat. What do you think about the recent push by teams to go big? Seems counterintuitive to the pay space and pace small ball era, but we're in, but more teams seem to embrace starting multiple big men that have perimeter skills. IE the Timberwolves, Cavs, Grizzlies, even the Celtics. All those teams had great success last year when healthy and the Timberwolves seem to make a lot of sense on paper. Is this a fad or is this more indicative of the full realization of the modern big unicorn big man? I think it's more so the latter. And I think what teams are trying to do here is that you want to still maintain uh, the ability to have a dynamic and diverse offense, but can you do it while also kind of upping your defensive ceiling? And so if you look at a lot of the, the teams that we roll through, yeah, Orlando was one of them and they were not good on defense, but four of the top 10 defenses from last year started two bigs, uh, Boston and Golden State, who were the two best defenses in the league. And then Cleveland was sixth and Memphis was fifth. And so 
what I think teams are at least trying to do is that they want to give themselves a defensive edge with players and size who are not going to compromise their ability to go against the grain or be versatile on offense. And I think what they've also decided in some cases that it will be easier to figure out a way to be an elite offense while having two bigs, maybe when it's imperfect on offense, than it is to be like, hey, let's downsize and overcome that. And so you look at the Warriors would be a great example. They finished 17 in offense last year. But when Steph is on the court, they have that transcendent talent to carry them to well above average offensively. Uh, you trust in Boston. They they were uh, 10th in offense, so they were. it was not the same case as Golden State. But to have someone like Jason Tatum, you trust that he's going to elevate your actual ceiling. Is it easier for him to do that than it is to downsize and play Jason Tatum himself with a five and still maintain a good defense uh, and not worry about the wear and tear on his body as well? And so let's Cleveland would be like a, one of the best examples here. And even you could throw... Uh, Minnesota, since it's going into the first year of this experiment for them, even though you had the Towns Vanderbilt dynamic last year, but Cleveland, like they've decided to play basically three bigs at points and think that they can still drum up enough offense and that they're not going to be able to replicate that same versatility as easily on defense. And so if you think that it's size and then mobility, size, mobility, and length, some combination of the three, if not all three is going to give you that pathway to an elite defense. And then you, because I do feel like it's easier for a singular player to have an impact on offense versus defense, where I do think it's more team and personnel dependent. And Rudy Gobert would be a perfect example. He punches your ticket to a top 10 defense by his, on his own every single season. But if you get to the playoffs, you need like more defensive talent around him, or it's going to be easier to make life hell on him. And you could say offensively, you need the same thing. You don't just want the one player to run everything through, but over the longer term, it does feel like one player on offense can have a much bigger dent on the product impact on the product um, in the higher leverage moments than someone on defense. And so if you think that this model is a way to really beef up your defense um, and maybe even counter some of the teams that are going small, we talk about how are the Timberwolves going to match up if the Clippers decide to downsize against them, for instance, in a playoff series or just a game, maybe you're trying to force teams outside of their comfort zone. Do the Clippers, when they don't have the size to run two bigs, can you sort of beat them into submission there? And so I think those are the elements that go into it. But I mostly think that um, teams are always looking for, a, like, not cheat codes, but counters to what's happening, the new trends. This is just a natural counter, but it also feels like a, a conscious or maybe even subconscious decision that, hey, we can build, like, these terrifying defenses with size and dual bigs and then still just be good enough on offense um, even if the fit is imperfect. And in places like Boston, it's not imperfect because Al Horford's space is the floor and you have Rob Williams as a um, a passer running down the lane and also just like a lob catcher and, and good rim diver there. So yeah, there, there are times where, where it works out just fine. But even in a Memphis where maybe a Steven Adams and Jaron Jackson Jr. aren't the ideal fit alongside one another just because, uh, yeah, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s space is the floor and Steven Adams can be your primary screen setter there, but Steven Adams is more limited offensively than a Robert Williams the third to me and Steven Adams is a fan I know what he does for you on the offensive class so it feels like that type of a decision where teams are looking at this and saying uh we it's easier for us to cobble together really good offense if the personnel is imperfect so long as we have that one sort of guiding force than if you flip-flop it on the defensive end and that uh maybe just the size is better to beat up on some of these teams that want to run smaller do I think this trend is here to stay I honestly don't know 
I think the Timberwolves might be the ultimate litmus test for this. And that's because it's such an extreme when you're looking at the pay that was allocated to it and the caliber of talent that's up front. This isn't like Draymond Green and Kevon Looney where there's one star and a non-star or Al Horford sort of at the end of his prime or the end of his tail end of his career versus with Robert Williams, the third who's at the beginning of his prime, uh, even Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. Uh, they're both at the beginning of their primes. And only one of them is expensive right now. So you haven't had to like make that extra pot commitment. And I think how Minnesota fares during the regular season, as well as in the playoffs is going to say a great deal about whether this is something that catches on more so around the league. Uh, I'm going to actually stop it there. I got through all the Discord questions. I will get to the mailbag and YouTube ones in a separate one that will go live on Saturday. So hopefully you just appreciate the, the extra content. Uh, this was all great. If you have not already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcast. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, hit like, comment, help the algorithm love us back. Let's bust it the hell up. As always, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the indelible, Frank Nila. Tina.